Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Come on, everyone. All right, there we go. Um, welcome. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. My name is Matt Kressel. I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow, who is currently in Kansas City at Worldcon. Um, hopefully not having a better time than we will tonight. Um, my, uh, my partner in crime this evening is, is Mercurio David Rivera, who's subbing for Ellen. And uh, he told me that he's going to put on an Ellen wig and take really bad photos of everyone. Um, we got a, we got a, two great authors for you tonight, uh, Liana Renee Heber and Theodora Goss. Yeah, and uh, I'm really excited. Um, I've, I've been a fan of their work for a long time, and uh, it's always great to uh, have them back here at uh, Fantastic Fiction. Um, Liana wants me to remind you that she has books for sale up here, uh, Eterna and Omega, and Strangely Beautiful, and the Eterna Files. So uh, at the break, come up, uh, buy a book, get it signed, and, uh, and meet the author. Yeah. So uh, before we begin, uh, Leanna's going to start reading for us. Uh, just a couple quick announcements. Um, the, the KGB bar, it's always free. There's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you buy a drink. Uh, hard or soft, go to the bar. Uh, buy, a, buy a drink and tip your bartenders. They're working very hard for your benefit. And uh, they, they, you know, the series, the, the fantastic fiction at KGB has been going since the late 90s. And, uh, you know, if you, if you support the bar, then you support the series. So please do so. Um, next month, September 21st, we have Laird Barron and Alyssa Wong. October 19th, Jack Ketchum and Caitlin R. Kiernan. November 16th, we have John Langan and yours truly, Matthew Kressel. December 21st, Livia Llewellyn and Sarah Pinsker. January 18th, Holly Black and Fran Wilde. February 15th, Michael Sisko and our favorite guest, TBA. TBA, that's right. Uh, March 15th, Nova Rensuma and Kini Ibura Salam. So we got a nice lineup for you. Hope you'll join us for that. Um, our first reader is Leanna Renee Heber. She is a classically trained actress and has written nine Gothic Victorian historical fantasy novels for adults and teens. Her strangely beautiful saga hit Barnes and Noble and Borders bestseller lists, won genre awards, and has been recently reissued in a new revised edition from Tor. Her gas, lamp, her gas Lamp fantasy series, The Eterna Files, and its sequel, Eterna and Omega, is now available. She's been featured in numerous anthologies, and her books have been translated into many languages. 
a proud member of Performer Union's Actors' Equity and SAG-AFTRA, she's been featured in film and television on shows like Boardwalk Empire. Here's Leanna. Hello, darlings. I am so glad to be back here. I've been working on Wednesday nights, and I haven't been here in a while, and I've missed this place and all your faces and the wonderful fiction that's here. And, uh, and I've been a, a big fan of Theodora's work for a while, so I'm really honored to be here with her tonight. And uh, I'm really thrilled to continue um, with my Eternophiles saga. So basically everything I write is Gothic Victorian fantasy. They're crossover worlds, so you don't have to have read one of the series to appreciate the other, but they do have crossover characters. Um, and everything's set in the late 18. 80s, so in, in the midst of the 1880s. Um, in this, basically, the inspiration for this was loving the X-Files and loving the Victorian era and wanting to combine them, so if you liked the X-Files and you like people in frock coats and petticoats, you're going to like this. So um, with, with all of this, um, I'm, I'm going to try to keep the backstory to the minimum here. I am reading from book two. Um, so I have two X-Files-like offices, one in New York and one in London. Both of them have been tasked to find the cure for death uh, by the respective grieving widows at the heads of their various respective governments. And this isn't working out well. In fact, it just leaves a trail of dead bodies. So um, my, my, poor, um, my poor offices, uh, both um, uh, here and across the pond, um, are both... No, no one's very good at their jobs, um, and I love that. Like, so my, the interesting thing for me about the X-Files was the office politics, and, and that was as interesting to me as the monster of the week. So I have plenty of monsters, and I have plenty of dark stuff. I also have a lot of really egregious office politics, um, which I kind of love. And so um, what I'm going to read from is my Omega team, and they're the Brits. Um, my Omega team is, uh, is about to be dispatched to New York because they think... Basically, my, my Eterna team on uh, here in New York and my Omega team, they both think the other one is responsible for killing their respective scientists. They're not. It's an evil third party possessed by demons, as, as you do. Um, but, but they don't know this yet. Um, and uh, my, the head of the Omega department um, was the head of the Metropolitan Police, and he's been put by the Queen onto Omega department. This is a very hard-boiled detective kind of guy. This is not a guy who wants to deal with paranormal shit. He really doesn't. And so this is his no good, very bad day, the entire series. Um, and so basically all you need to know about Harold Spire is you know that look that Martin Freeman as Dr. Watson gives Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock? That are you fucking kidding me look? That's basically Harold Spire, the entire series. I, um, so, this is, so that's really all you need to know about where he's at. He's about to meet his team in their offices and his team is full of psychics and con people and circus performers. So um, this, he really loves this, not so much. And um, he, he's, he's overseen, the, the Skinner of the Omega department is, um, is Lord Black, who is a terribly likable uh, aristocrat, that, and, and Harold Spire finds this, as an as a average middle class guy, really annoyed that he really can't hate this guy. Um, who's sort of his boss. So um, you'll see all that dynamic play out, and, and um, I will inflict British, ac Brit British accents upon you because, because theater. So <laughs> when Harold Spire took to the streets like this, in a circuitous route, it was generally to purge himself of mental images of his mother's death. But since his discoveries of the ritualistic deaths in Tourney's cellars, 
images of those fresh horrors were superimposed upon the older ones. When his next allotment of funds arrived, he would invest in a hearty new pair of shoes. His sanity would need them. By the time he reached the Omega offices, the exsanguinated corpses in his mind's eye had been replaced by more mundane sights, bustling, clattering London in all its vast splendor and squalor. Their Millbank headquarters loomed before him, the one-time factory turned into spacious offices. It was a grand building, but nondescript enough for Spire to feel confident in the covert nature within. He climbed the front stairs, and before he could insert his key into the hefty lock, the door was flung open with a distinct wrenching and then popping sound, but revealed no one. Spire placed a hand on his breast pocket where a small pistol was a large comfort. The wide and empty foyer of brick and metal beams revealed no clue as to the door's automation. However, there were sounds from the floors above that were distinct to his keen ears, metal on metal, small squeaks and pops. Was there some sort of mill or factory starting back up in this old industrial space? Slowly, he stepped across the threshold onto the wide landing. The door closed behind him, accompanied by a little buzz. Spire whirled around and spotted an odd lever at the top of the thick door with a wired contraption above that sported a clock and a small roll of paper. An automatic door. Was that wise or necessary? He shuddered to think that the man to whom he directly reported had so little care for security. A moment after the door had swung closed behind him, there was a tapping noise and a tab of the paper rolled out. Spire reached out and viewed the protruding slip. 2 p.m. Entry 77 kg. After this marking of time and weight, there was a small carbon imprint, a silhouette, his silhouette, framed in the door somehow. Likely that strange pop indicated an exposure that took in the door frame as if it were a crude, light-sensitive imprint, just a silhouette, but enough for certain particulars, his hatless head, wind-blown hair, and the cut of his frock coat and trousers. Spire was conflicted, impressed, and perturbed equally. Spire followed the noise to the top floor. He opened the plain white door opposite Lord Black's closed office door, and within, discovered that his circus had become a madhouse. Guns lined the walls, and a number of the members of Omega were examining them. Across the room, Blakely, the short, nervous, excitable chemist and magician, was taking a rifle apart. That Blakely knew how to take a rifle apart and perhaps put it together again was a concept that awed and utterly terrified Spire, who deemed him too flighty for bullets. The Wilsons, in their simple cipher uniforms of black tunics, hoods, and leggings, were rappelling up and down the high-ceilinged wall in tandem. The wire attached to the harnesses they wore of their costumes was so fine as to be nearly invisible. From various points horizontal to the floor, the smaller framed of the two otherwise neutrally clad bodies, Adira Wilson, paused mid-rappel to throw an impressive sequence of small silver blades at a target upon the far wall. The speed and precision were incredible, and Spire was reminded that the Wilsons were infamous as international spies and as an epic cross-cultural love story, long before they'd turned sour to foreign affairs, feigned their deaths, and took on this odd off-the-books employ, thanks to Mr. Wilson's orphanage mate, Mr. Blakely. Spire surmised the, Wilson, the Wilsons had talents he might not even want to know, though he warmed to the idea of utilizing Mrs. Wilson as a bodyguard. Even Miss Everhart held an odd contraption, an electrical device of some kind, judging by the thin thread of lightning sparking across the ball that was cupped her in her hands. A Tesla coil, if Spire remembered correctly. Where her hair wasn't pinned in place, it was standing up around her head. Miss Knight, their resident flamboyant clairvoyant, who was very fond of women, fondled a small pistol of a make Spire had never seen, as if it were a piece of jewelry. Spire noted her utter elegant assurance with the weapon, and he uncomfortably realized his own biases about femininity and the machinery of warfare and murder. And murder. So much of what Spire had thought true of the world was upended by Omega. What Lord Black hoped to accomplish with all of these trappings was anyone's guess. Spire remembered that Rose Everhart 
had said Black fancied himself a spy, an espionage enthusiast who would take Spire's job if he could. Oh, if only he would. Was that a coffin in the corner? Spire thought with a disdain. Yes. Upright against the wall, a red curtain hiding it, stood a black casket with an ostentatious golden pyramid sporting an eye painted in the center, a mas uh, Masonic symbol, of course, which made Spire roll his eyes at the theatrical mysticism heaped upon those ancient ranks. No one noticed Spire for a good few minutes, making him newly skeptical of their abilities as spies and assassins. Where also was Lord Black? Welcome to my war room! Lord Black declared, jumping out of the coffin, as if on cue. Spire did not start, though his eye twitched a bit. Oh, I didn't scare you. That always scared everyone at parties, Black pouted. You see, I used to have all of this in my home, but I'm a generous man, and you fine talents should benefit, he declared triumphantly. Peephole in the eye. Black grinned, tapping the golden pyramid. That's how you surprise your prey. At the word prey, Spire's eye twitched again, remembering how he'd been the butt of a circus act for Lord Black's delight. But not you, Mr. Spire. Steeled, Mr. Spire. That's why you're the man for the job. Spire's knees itched to dart back onto the streets for a calming walk again, seeing as though he'd paced miles only to be harangued. I'll be steeled in my offices should anyone wish to join me, he replied. Storming down the flights to his own office door, bright lit by midday sun, streaming through wide arched curtain windows, his footsteps echoed through the otherwise silent space until the rest of his team burst in behind him in a stream, chattering away. Spires stalked to the circular central table. The others gathered around, and he started right in, eager to get to something useful. Lord Black brought up the rear, and once the nobleman was within earshot, Spire launched into orders. In orchestrating the recovery of British bodies and arranging for you to question New York's Eterna Commission on the act, in addition to investigating the electrical oddity Lord Black added to the plate, I aim to remain in England while sending you operatives forth. Instantly, there was murmuring from everyone, except, predictably, his second Rose Everhart. The Blakeleys seemed offended. The Wilson seemed baffled. Who shall lead the group if you stay behind, Mr. Spire? Mr. Wilson asked finally. I'm not going, Spire. Lord Black waved a languid hand, leaning against a nearby table filled with various bottles from Blakely's alchemical arsenal. So if you're not either, well... I've no desire to abandon responsibility, Spire began, but I'm better suited here. Here in London, Spire thought to himself, where ghastly murders await a prescribed list of victims, and nothing of immortality is rational or more important. The dead scientists are dead. He added, I personally would like to be sure a future crop of them remain protected. Your metropolitan men have been trustworthy, Black countered, have a detail assigned. They are overtaxed with the Turney murders, Spire leaned in Black's direction to remind the aristocrat, who is dead, you recall, by mysterious, gruesome circumstances and not to be ignored. Let's have a word about all this, Black said, his war room delight clearly having sobered. Spire made for his door, not your office, mine. Mine has far better liquor. Spire turned to his team. While none of you can announce a destination or purpose for your travel to anyone, do make sure no one goes looking for you and that all family and associates are summarily taken care of. The rest of the team looked on in curiosity, but did not press. Instead, moseyed to their desks, and Miss Everhart immediately went to the telegraph machine. Spire shut the department door behind him before ascending the reverberate iron stairs behind Lord Black, who held the door for Spire and closed it behind him. Speak freely, Mr. Spire, Black offered, gesturing for him to sit. 
Black moved to a sideboard to pour two helpings of what was likely bourbon worth Spire's whole salary. The nobleman slid the crystal snifter across the smooth, elaborately lacquered mahogany dusk. I am torn between directives, sir, and I do not wish my team to see hesitancy. Well, Omega is your only directive, Mr. Spire. I thought that had been entirely clear from day one when you met with the Queen. The most gruesome sights and crimes of the age are not to be set aside for this lark. Your leads in attorney investigation secured his arrest. Your leads. Why force me to stop now? If you can prove that the Omega Department and attorney have direct commonality, Black replied, I can convince the Queen to allow you a broader scope between metropolitan interests and ours. As it stands, I am directed to keep you very focused. I believe Francis Turney has holdings in the Apex Corporation, the company that shipped the dead bodies of our scientists to New York. Well then, there you go. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Finally, this should not have been that hard. I know, Mr. Spire, Black murmured. There came a distinct shift in the man. The grand presence was suddenly just a tired man in a striped satin frock coat seated in an overlarge desk. Lord Black, Spire pressed quietly. Her Majesty hides aspects of this department. I've been unable to visit the estate where the previous scientists had been living prior to being abducted, and though I am charged with their protection, I've not met any candidates for a new team, save for the doctor, if you can call him that, Xavier. Whether you, Lord Black, are complicit in this obfuscation, I cannot tell. Black sighed. Spire was discomfited. Every time he and Lord Black had been together, the nobleman had been the picture of joy, mischief, and confidence. He was notoriously a charming dandy, the sort of personality that by all accounts should constantly grate on Spire's nerves, but damn the man, he was insufferably likable. It was clear, however, that today something was wearing upon this effervescent presence. Lord Black took great care in responding. Obfuscation, no, not to my knowledge, but things are afoot, Mr. Spire. I, I do confess I've bad news about the new scientists, my good man, and why you haven't met them. Spire set his jaw. Don't tell me we've lost more men. I don't know, Black said wearily. Possibly. There was supposed to be a fresh crop, and I intended to bring them here to our Millbank offices, as you requested. It prudent indeed to have them under your watch. I have been overruled. By? Her Majesty. Before you ask, no, she gave no reason. Black offered a strained, ironic smile. The new scientists are to be kept in the same manner the others disappeared from in the first place. Spire blinked. Lovely. That seems entirely imprudent. I agree, but I was not given the opportunity to argue that point. Lovely. If neither of us is listened to, Lord Black held up a hand, his expression weary, the look of a man tired of being unheard. Spire knew the feeling well. For someone of such position and privilege to feel as helpless as Spire himself, the last of any remaining antagonism towards the Lord vanished. Tell me then, share with me what I can do, Spire said, with a gentleness usually foreign to his nature. The extreme personalities that surrounded his new position had driven him to adopt varying tactics that taxed the range of his admittedly limited sentiment. Give me leave and resources. I am driven to better this city, for queen and country. That is truly what I was born to do. But I can do nothing for any of those noble purposes under clouds of obfuscation and dangerous measures. Spire feared that all the inefficiencies stemmed from Her Majesty herself. If so, then he'd have to find a way, somehow, to be shifted back into his old position at the Metropolitan, and quickly, before the unfinished business of the tourney case was cold as stone. Spire shuddered as he thought about what the queen was after. 
eternal life. He'd yet to meet a single soul in higher office he'd want to stay in for a next term, let alone forever. The true horror of Eterna Pax Victoria dawned on him in a sour ray of jaundiced light. There was a soft click of shining leather boots upon the slate floor as Lord Black paced to and fro. The nobleman approached Spire, took his snifter, and refilled both glasses at the mahogany console table littered with various objects that by their appearance had likely been ferreted away from pyramids. Black returned Spire's snifter to him before taking a seat in his vast leather throne of a chair. I do worry about the crown, Black murmured. I know it's treasonous to say so. Spire hesitated a moment longer, then dove in. Treason? is entirely contextual, sir. It camouflages to suit the surroundings. Good and evil are not so changeable. You hired me because you thought I did a good job in the Metropolitan Police. I was able to do so because I acted only with comprehensive information. I'll not risk my life or those placed under my purview carelessly or for questionable cause. There has to be morality beneath it all. I will not pursue immortality or anything associated with it if, if there is not morality at the core. Nor should you, my lord. Do not be persuaded to do anything but that which keeps mankind from regressing to animals. This had an impact on Lord Black. You're a good man, Spire. We're lucky. I am lucky to have you. I'll do whatever I can to make sure this office is on the right side of what it was built for. You have my word for what that's worth. A great deal, my lord, thank you, Spire said with a rare earnestness. I'd like to offer you proof of my word, Black added with a familiarly jovial grin. But I feel you question the means. Spire looked at him quizzically. That day at Buckhouse, I had you tested by a man who can gaze at the aura of a person and tell if he's doing right by humankind or ill, whether he's on the side of the angels or the devils, let's say. Spire recalled that horrid day, the day he'd gone from Turney's cellar of nightmares to the splendor of Buckingham Palace. So that's what had been happening while he'd been stuck in that tiny room. His aura had been spied upon. Lovely. Whether you believe it or not, he deemed you right and honorable, Mr. Spire, Black said. I'll have Lord Denbury keep a good eye on all of us to make sure we remain so. By whose bias, Spire countered. By that sweet, kind man's estimation, the nobleman said with an unmistakable fondness. I am certain his bias is that of godly. You'll see what I mean soon enough. I'm drawing him into our confidences. There's a parade Saturday, and I'll have him at our box when the Queen passes by. He can have a look. An aura reader to add to Omega's circus. Spire held back a sigh, but he thought with some surprise, if Black had suspicions of the crown itself, and that's why Denbury's eye was being called upon, this all could be labeled treason indeed. A new weight shifted in Spire's stomach. I've orders to give, my lord, Spire said once the strained silence had grown uncomfortable. If you'll excuse me, sir, he rose and bowed. Black nodded and got to his feet, his exhaustion plain once more. Lead on, my good man. With Black on his heels, Spire opened his department door. He heard a little thwinging sound that ended in a soft pop and felt a distinct sting upon his forehead. Bullseye, cried Mr. Blakely, theatrical ringmaster and chemical tinkerer, the arms of his aquamarine velvet frock coat flapping as if he were a tall, spindly waterfowl. Spire stood stock still and reached up to touch whatever it was that had landed upon his brow. Before he could remove the projectile, there was a crackling sound followed by a smoke that burst upon Spire's face in an instant, gray and acrid. He doubled over, coughing, then spun around and went right back out, seeking clean air. He snatched the arrow-like object from his forehead and peered at it. 
crumpled it in his shaking palm. A piece of broken balsa wood with a little capsule attached. Really, Mr. Blakely, wouldn't the wall have been wiser for a test subject than your superior? Rose Everhart stated sharply from her post at the telegraph machine just inside the second floor threshold. Still gasping, Spy returned to the office as Blakely replied earnestly, I need to know that it works on human skin in motion. The operative does have to have good aim, and I haven't yet accounted for wind. You will account, Mr. Blakely, Spire hissed after clearing his throat several times. Acrid particles still clung to the inside of his nostrils and made his eyes water. For not coming within many feet of me for the sanctity of your facial features until you've proved that blasted thing of vital importance. Oh, rest assured, mon capitaine, I'll shut up, Blakely, and I'll prepare you to travel to New York City. Your steamer leaves tomorrow, and dress less dramatically. I can hear that coat from across the room, it's so loud. Spies, Blakely, do not wear turquoise. Blakely gasped, utterly aghast. It is aquamarine, thank you very much. We are here, Spire growled. If any of you have the capacity to recall, to examine a plan of recovery of the bodies of our late scientists, learn what we can of a paternus commission, and seize the man of electrical aberration known as Mr. Mosley. He squared his shoulders and took charge. Since you are a circus, I'm using you as such. Set yourself up as a small fair, tent and all, in whatever downtown space you can manage. If it's close to a governmental area, all the better. Present a cipher invitation to your show directly to our American counterparts, the Eterna offices. We know from intelligence that Senator Bishop and Miss Clara Templeton spend part of their time investigating sham spiritualism and outrageous divination. Your performance should be irresistible to them. He turned to Miss Knight, who nodded with a smile of understanding. Find out, by whatever clever discussion necessary, what they want and have done with our scientists. They, might, they may not be in possession of the dead bodies, but we need to rule them out. Be careful, as I don't know if they will seek retaliation for our colleague Mr. Brinkman's unconventional interrogation of them earlier. As well, see what you can do to lure out Mr. Mosley. I'll wire every contact point for Brinkman I have, so he may make himself useful to you for a change. Apex, Mr. Spire, Miss Everhart prompted. Indeed, keep all ears tuned for the Apex Corporation or ties to the Master's Society. Apex is the company responsible for shipping the bodies, which puts them on our watch list. The Master's Society precedes them and may be the inspiration or directly responsible. Spire turned to Lord Black. Now, have I your permission to send them all away and remain here in peace? You do, Black said, hiding a chuckle. Might that be extended to me as well? Everhart asked with careful nonchalance. Do you really want to hear the Prime Minister whining if I'm entirely absent from Westminster? Lord Black shuddered. God, no. You stay too, Everhart. Thank you, my lord. For the first time all day, Spire took a calm breath and was able to relax his shoulders. His respite was short-lived as an intruder appeared on the threshold to the offices, a petite red blonde woman wearing a deep red riding habit. Her sharp features and imperious air made her seem twice her size. <coughs> she surveyed the room and its inhabitants, gave a single nod as if they had passed inspection, then turned away and strode up the metal stairs to Black's top floor. Let's see what all these offices look like, shall we? Excuse me, Miss, Spire called after the newcomer as he stepped out into the landing. Who are you and how did you get in? Why, hello there, don't mind me, I'm away with doors. She replied, turning to stare down at him from the landing above. Out of the corner of his eye, Spire saw that Lord Black and Miss Everhart had come up close behind him at the second floor landing. This is a restricted access building, Miss. You can't be here. Can I help you? 
She offered the three who stood a landing below a prim smile. Her small, sensible hat was cocked at a slight angle that was opposite from the tilt of her curious, scrutinizing gaze. This is the Omega department, is it not? Her accent was of a good London breeding, but there was something a bit odd about it, as if it echoed through time. Spire looked at Lord Black and didn't say another word. He'd let the man who said to defer insistent queries about the department take it from here. Spire knew the upper-class, imperious type, and he would let the gentry deal with it. No, this isn't the Omega Department, Lord Black said, completely unconvincingly. Oh, shut up, yes it is. The woman frowned, folding her arms. Black's mouth dropped open. Spire wanted to put his face in his hands at what was supposed to be kept a government secret. Instead, he just scowled, watching the intruder. She descended again towards them, returning to the second floor to address them eye to eye. You are, Black prompted. The woman took a deep breath and replied on a bit of a tear, her voice low, crisp, authoritative, and oddly echoing for so small a frame, and held the company in a bit of a thrall. I have many names, and to some, I'm just the visitor. But you may call me Lizzie Marlowe of the Marlowe Trust. That should ring a bell with you, Lord Black. Seeing as you're a member of the House of Lords, you'd know my family, and if I do recall, your uncle was set to do mine some favors that never arrived. Well, I'm not here to call upon those at present. I'm here to see what this department begins as. Taking notes, really, is what Omega could become, if you're not very, very careful, is very, very important. With that, she swept down again to the front door. Her bright eyes narrowed, as if she were a hawk that suddenly spied a mouse in a field, but in reverse, looking up rather than down at her prey. She pointed suddenly at Miss Everhart. You. It'll be up to you, my dear. You and Clara Templeton, to keep the departments honest, keep shop, and do go to New York, will you? And with that, Lizzie Marlowe turned to the door, peered at the latches, clicked the lever so that it would lock upon her exit, and was gone. Spire noticed with great discomfort that there was no reed upon the paper ticker above the door that had been installed to track the time, weight, and silhouette of any visitor. The black paper read as if no one had been there at all. Everyone was dumbstruck for a moment. The rest of the team had filed in silently behind Miss Everhart, and they were all looking at her expectantly. After a long moment, a baffled Lord Black broke the silence. Actually... I don't know any Marlowe's at all, aside from, you know, the playwright. And the blacks don't owe them any favors. What in the world was that? He stared at Miss Everhart, who had grown more pale than when the day began. Don't look at me, Everhart replied uneasily. I haven't a clue. But she said Templeton. Clara Templeton. She must be referring to the Clara of New York's commission. Well, find out what she meant. We may need you in New York after all, Mr. E Miss Everhart, Black stated. Spire and Everhart sighed in unison. Miss Knight was staring at the door with wide-eyed fascination. I could not, for the life of me, get a read on that woman, and I'm fairly good with reading women if I do say so myself, she said with a bit of an entendre. She reads almost as if she's a ghost, but far too corporeal. It isn't that she doesn't exist, but it's as if she exists too much. Whatever she is, she's not normal. Add that to our growing list of abnormal. Spire stated through clenched teeth. If you haven't noticed, Lord Black, your contraption there to register entrances and visitors is already broken. It recorded nothing just then, and we all saw and heard that woman. So this wasn't a case for your secret ghostly department, but do something about that door. Thank you. That was really great. Uh, so we're going to take about a 15-minute break, and uh, like I said before, come up, uh, buy some books. Leanna's got some books for sale, and then we'll be back in about uh, 15 minutes with Theodora Goss. See you in a little while.
You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.